Okay, if you would please turn to 1 John chapter 5. I will be reading 1 John chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we obey His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Blessed is the reading of God's holy, eternal, infallible Word. Father, I ask that the clarity that is here on the page not get muddled, but be just as clear and helpful to our minds in my teaching of it. And I pray, Father, that there's no soul in here that will feel these words in any way, as a burden. But by Your Spirit, by the salvation in which we are being saved in Your Son, they will be our joy. They will be our hope. They will be water to our souls. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 2015, John wrote this almost 2,000 years ago, and so here we are, we, we live way down the stream of church history, and lots has happened, the Great Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, the 1500s has happened, we, we have hundreds upon hundreds of denominations just within this country, we have a church over there and a church over there. And, and many of us, like we will see in a few weeks, if you show up to this thing, you got someone from this denomination, someone from that denomination, someone from another denomination. But look, we all love Jesus. But you can't always be sure about that within the church world and in every church because the core values can be very different, not just peripheral stuff. We have denominations that more and more are voting in their annual meetings to yes, it's time that we start to ordain into the ministry practicing homosexuals. Okay, so here we can go on. I can go on and on, right? So here's the question: Wouldn't it be really nice if 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 somehow there were a way to know what is it? What does the core of a Christian? I mean. One of the persons that Jesus seems to constantly be talking about. I have my sheep, and then there are those who are not. What does that look like? That would be really nice. To know which sinners, because we're all sinners, but which sinners in the world today are those who are being pulled out of darkness and have been placed into the light of Jesus in His kingdom. In other words, or say it, Another way, biblically, who are those who have been supernaturally changed by new birth through the preaching and their believing in the Gospel? Gosh, that would be so awesome. And that is precisely what we have here in verse 1 of chapter 5 of 1 John. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. He's not done. And 
Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever else has been born of Him. So let me just re-say this to bring out a little bit of the nuance that's there when John wrote it originally in, in Greek. He's saying every person who is ongoingly believing the truth that that man, Jesus, is the Messiah, is the Christ. Every one of those persons, look around, those are the ones who have been, and thus presently are, born of God. In other words, what he says is, I, I, don't, I try never, very rarely to do this unless I find it important. Pull out the old Greek to you. But the first verb, believing, everyone who believes, it's a present tense in the Greek, which means this is not just now, but it's got this emphasis on this ongoing action. Believing. Everyone who's believing ongoingly that Jesus is the Christ. And then comes the next verb and... It's in the perfect tense, which points back to something prior to your believing. Something's happened in the past with ongoing effects. So, presently, those who are believing the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is the Christ, those are the ones who have been and thus are born. Of God. In other words, John is clearly saying that faith in Jesus is the result, it's the evidence of being born of God, of being born again. New birth causes faith. That Jesus is the Christ in His mind. It's not the other way around. It's really important because so many of us Christians don't read the Bible very carefully. And therefore, there are millions of Christians, if you try to bring up the subject, and they assume the exact opposite of what this passage says. And many other New Testament passages. And thus, they have doctrines built around it. Come up here and pull the lever. If you do this, then in response to that, God will make sure you get born again. And now you go off and call yourself a born again Christian. Raise your hand. Come up and say the prayer. And that prayer will cause new birth. It's not right. But instead, new birth precedes, comes before, and it causes saving faith. Not the other way around. The baby crying, the infant crying, is the result of having been born No one thinks, look, the baby's crying. That's what caused the birth. doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way in this passage. So he says, everyone who does believe that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And then comes the second part of verse 1. And everyone... I'm sorry, so here's the illustration that just came to my head. Everyone who's been born cries. Everyone who loves the Father because they've been born of Him. Here's the crying. Loves whoever has been born of Him. In other words... Everyone who loves the One who gives new birth have been born of Him. They thereby, and by that which happened in them, they love all the others 
who have been miraculously born of Him. Born of the same Father. Born of the same God. That's what John says. There it is. He writes clearly. Let me just repeat what he says. And Sometimes I like to paraphrase. Some of you say it's helpful, so let me just say verse 1 again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God's Spirit. And thus they love Jesus. They love God. God the Father is their treasure. And all of those who really love the Father like that, by definition they love all those others who by that same new birth also believe that Jesus, the human being, is the promised Messiah, is the promised Christ. Because believing in Jesus, believing in the, the, the truth that the apostles delivered is the mark of having been born of God. And so John says, so of course, they who love God also love others who have been miraculously saved by the same miracle of new birth. So what are you saying? Those are the ones who belong to Jesus. Those are the ones who are of His church. Those are the ones who make covenant with each other saying, yes, I'm with you, brothers. I'm with you, sisters, to love you, to support you, to be able to count by you, to care for you. And now that's why John then, around verse 1, he draws two logical conclusions from that foundational truth of verse 1. The essence of what a Christian is. The first one, we just briefly touched on it last week. It's what he said right before. Chapter 4, starting with verse 20. Because of the truth of verse 1, therefore what? Therefore, if anyone says, I love God, I believe in Jesus, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Stunning. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John uses very strong language on this issue. A liar. In other words, he's saying that the religious practice of church going, of mental agreement with the doctrines of Christianity that do not produce a battle in that person against their own flesh, part of which is hatred, part of which is division, part of which is, I don't want to give my life up for anybody, love. If there's no battle against your innate sinfulness, or to say it positively like he's saying it here, if, if that profession of faith, that church life is not producing practical, heartfelt affections of love that spill over in actions, he's saying, well, let me be, I'm going to be kinder than John, because it just sounds too rough. He's saying it's just empty talk. But instead, John has this vision of what his really good friend Jesus purchased and is creating. And that is people hear the Gospel. And those who come to Him have a profession of faith. They claim, I love God through Jesus Christ. John knows they go on existing in community. How we care, how we love, how we treat each other who are visible. This is John's language now. It reflects whether we really delight in the invisible Father. Son and Holy Spirit. 
If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Why, John? Because he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Okay. John, why do you make that statement? Answer, verse 1, chapter 5. By this we know that we, excuse me, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God. Then John, because now it gets kind of strange for a moment, and from what we've been reading all through 1 John up to this point. Because that argument, we, we've seen that conclusion over and over, right? But he draws another conclusion or another unfolding or explanation of the essence of the core of a Christian in verse 1. And it comes in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 5. And it's got a twist to it. By this, we know that we love the children of God. Other believers. How do we know that? Here's his answer. This is how you know. When we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. Now, if you're you're awake and paying attention to what He just has written there, it does feel kind of strange. Because over and over and over in this letter, his argument has been this. The way you test whether your faith in Jesus is real, the, the way you test whether you really love the Father through Jesus Christ is genuine and real, is whether you love other believers. Right? And now he goes, okay, let's ask this question. How do you know if you really love other believers? I, mean, I remember I, I preached a sermon a few weeks ago and I made the comment, there's a kind of love, all kinds of unbelievers do really well and have real hearts that feel for someone and serve and do stuff. Absolutely. John knows this. He knows that a person can have all kinds of profession and watch that. They do some really nice things. They give of their money, their time, their talents. And they have a heart for people. They're in. John says, not necessarily. Be careful. They might not really know and love God. And so he says, the way you test now whether your actions in serving and loving other people, how do you test whether that's genuine? His answer is, The test is, you love God. That's strange. Okay, let me see if I'm following you right. John, okay. We know that we love God. How? Because we love each other. Okay, got that. Then you say, John, we know we love one another because we love God. Where in the world do you jump in? Sounds like a circular argument. So we're supposed to wake up in the morning and go to God, right? Help me. I struggle with my sinfulness. Father, help me today. Open the Scripture. I don't want to love you. Soften my heart towards you. It's just all vertical here. Got it. And then you, well, before you leave, that's right. I've got to go through my day now. Now, Joe, there's an evidence whether you're really loving God based upon how you're treating now other people, whether you're loving them. Okay. And John says, wait, don't go yet. <laughs> but make sure that your love for others and how you're treating them is real by loving God. Where I started again. That's, you see that? That's what he seems here to be saying. So, and it feels like a vicious, circular argument. You don't know where to jump in. But thank goodness John is not done. He goes on to help us out with verse 3. For, 
explain now. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. That's what love of God is to John. So because John tells us our love for God is the test of whether we love others who are also born of God, he now unpacks specifically what it means to love God. In verse 3 for John, love for God means keeping His commandments and not experiencing those commandments as a burden to you. In other words, if the commandment comes, give time and a listening ear to your hurting brother or sister. If the commandment comes, don't forsake your assembling together with the body of Christ. And the person says, oh, I'm a Christian. I guess I'm supposed to do that. Alright, I'll do it. And that's the attitude as you go doing it. You can do it all you want and it's not love. That's just point. It's a burden. Do you? Let me, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to spend a few minutes because I, just, I could go really long and I'm not going to go really long, but just, let, me, let me go search real briefly and I have an idea where most of these things are in Paul where he just talks directly to Sovereign Grace Fellowship in every local church throughout the ages about loving one another. In other words, where, where the commands of God come straight at us. And, and John is saying, when we hear God's commandments, there's something that happens. We go, yes! Yes! Not burdensome. So, for instance, in Romans 12, 9-10, God says through Paul, Christians, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. A believer hears the command. John says, love of God is obeying it. As if it's not a big, massive, heavy weight on your back. Or Romans 13, 8-11, the command of the Lord comes. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law of God. For the commandments, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not covet others' stuff. And any other commandment, they're all summed up. In this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. And therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So the commandment through Paul comes and with us professing Christians, there's response. Or in Romans 15, 1-3, the Lord says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not just to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not come to please Himself. So the commandment, it comes and it says, so what if you don't get anything personally that you feel out of that commitment? It says, don't think about your life 
why you go to church. Women's group yesterday. Home group, men's groups, or getting together with others and invite them. You don't think about it. Well, can I get anything out of it? He says, Jesus didn't come thinking that. He says, love says, can I be a blessing that overflows to them? Or gentlemen, just one more. The Holy Spirit through Paul writes in Colossians 3, 12-14, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, you will, unless you live in a box, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So also you must forgive. And above all of these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Okay. There's a taste. So what John is saying, that love for Jesus, love for the Father, I love Him, I've been born of God, I love Him. He's saying that love says yes to those commandments. It says yes, Father, I feel where I fall short. Help my unbelief. Help me trust in Your promises. Help me be empowered in less selfish and sinful this day. Work by Your Spirit in me. John's saying that is what is the evidence. You're going to God that, okay, my love is genuine today. Do I love God? But on the other hand, if the response is... You mean you want me to take my valuable time in order to be there for the other person who may need me when there's nothing in it for me? According to the way John words this here, then that is to us at that moment a heavy burden is what we're saying. And that's how you know you are not loving them nor God. The way we know that our sacrifices and our service, our genuine love for each other in the body of Christ is by the test of whether our natural feelings day in and day out govern what we do. Or whether the biblical commandments of God govern what we do. That's what he says is the test. Almost. But it's not quite the whole test. There's one more step. It's whether these commandments are burdensome to you or not. So in other words, John said, when the fruit of the Holy Spirit who dwells, the Spirit who dwells within a person is flowing freely through our sacrifices, our caring, our service for each other in the body. In obedience to God's commands, He's saying they're a joy. That's how you know you're loving God in your loving the other person. He says it's like carrying a tiny bag of cotton on your back. You hardly feel it. No burden as opposed to carrying a huge sack of potatoes on your back, which is a huge burden. But let's make clear, I don't want to leave this yet, we'll go to the first part. The test of loving God, according to John, is when we are responding to Him. Responding to His commandments and obey them. That's what He says. His point is this. 
that true love that He's referring to, the love toward other persons cannot be separated from God's commandments. God's teaching. His Word. So when John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. He does not mean, if you speak Greek, agape, and now fill it in whatever you want. Or English, love. Just, okay, want to love. That's terrific. We, everyone likes love. Let's fill it in any old way we want to define what we think love is. Because in our culture and within the church, love has become a, a buzzword. Yeah, a biblical ideal. Let's love. Where, okay, I'm loving according to my definition, and this is what happens. Many of us may be tempted to say, I'm loving, and here's love, which is causing me to cancel out all kinds of clear biblical commandments in what I'm calling love. Is that making any sense yet? I can give lots of examples. I'm just going to give one, and then I might allude to another with a text because of time. I'm talking mainly about what happens in the church. I mean, this happens in the culture all over the place. But what's happening more and more in the church world, yes, we want to be loving. Look, for example, there is a small percentage of people who are only same-sex attracted. Jesus saves some of these. The others around them, we fellow believers, a believer's heart should break for the sexual brokenness that that brother or sister must endure. Feeling compassion, absolutely. But there are those who in the name of Christianity, who in the name of Jesus, say, well, it would be unloving for us to say that it is sin for them to follow their natural sexual desires and say you shouldn't practice homosexuality with another person. That would be unloving. I mean, especially now because it's becoming more and more culturally acceptable. Now, on the other hand, for, for many of us as individuals and as local churches with behavioral standards, we are by so many within the church, much less the culture, deemed by definition to be unloving. Same word, love, isn't it? And as they say, you're unloving to say that before God, a believer is not to be practicing heterosexual sex outside of marriage or homosexual sex in any context, even if the culture tries to redefine marriage, that attitude calling us unloving is the exact opposite of what this text says. John would say, the test of whether you truly love the same sex attracted person is not by putting sexual activity at the pinnacle of human existence, but it is allowing them to have God at that place. And it is yearning for them to be with you in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His second coming. It is, love is your desire that those persons would measure their sexual brokenness by God's Word. And if need be, take up their cross and follow Jesus. God's self-revealing of Himself in Holy Scripture, His, His commands 
to us in Scripture are what define love. The way John uses love here is not some term for people to fill up with their own definition of what it may mean. Well, love feels squishy here. I'm going to show them how much I care. Trust me, it's care. But not care. Disconnected from the truth of the Gospel and the truth of God's commands. I'm going to give you just one more. I'm just going to, give a, I'm going to read a, a paragraph. And I'm going to submit to you, here is one example of love. Paul writes to the gathered local church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. This is what I mean. One of your members is sleeping with his dad's wife. And you, the church, are not doing anything. He says, you are therefore arrogant. Ought you not rather more? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my Spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Paul's the only loving character going on here between him, the elders, and the membership at Corinth at this point. Why, Paul? So that His Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the question always is, do we go with Bible love? Or do we place the Bible aside and fill it up with all kinds of cultural... And you won't, you won't know that. You won't call it this, but it will be fleshly ideas of what love is. So often the commands of God are nullified in the name of the general concept of being loving. As if love were some wax nose that is constantly changing because cultures change. But verse 2 of chapter 5, First John says, if you want to know whether your ideas are loving, then measure your ideas by the commandments of God even if you have to go against social pressure. And you might be called unloving. See, in John's mind, you can't talk about loving people without bringing God's Word into the picture. The love of the Holy Spirit working through the church, through individual persons to other people is always happening in the context of the truth of God's Word. People who are born of God where He started, they love others. And they know their love is genuine because they love God and obey His commandments. Their love is guided by God's self-revelation in Holy Scripture. How you get saved, what is sin, what's not, what's right, what's wrong. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Here's that first part of it. Now remember, this is not just religion and join a club. John's been arguing, and because it is the only truly God-word, supernatural 
quote-unquote religion. When it comes to that supernatural work of new birth, here's John's flow. He's saying the obedience to God's commands is not the only test of whether you truly love God. But it's also that those commands must not be burdensome to you. Verse 3, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. He's saying there is something about supernaturally being converted to Jesus. There's something about finding our fulfillment in our Creator, loving Him through His Son, Jesus, that causes our walk with Him to extend to our relationships with each other. And not just obeying, do not slander. Do not gossip against her or him. Not just do not steal his or her spouse. Or don't steal their stuff. Or in the positive, care for, put on a compassionate heart, spend time with, serve, help. Those are all biblical commandments. But it is not just I performed them but to obey those commands happily. Not as a burden. Now, look down at the text. Then he goes on to explain why that is. This is what love for God is, John. Is to obey God. See, a lot of people today might say, I thought Jesus is all about, we don't have any more rules. He saved me. It doesn't matter really how I live. Okay, John says to Christians, your love for God, this is what it is, obeying His commandments. And His commandments aren't burdensome. But why, John? Because he thinks Jesus' cross really actually did something, not just to God towards you, but because of God the Father toward us, it produces something miraculous in us. That's why. Here's his argument. For, verse 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Here it comes. What? Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Follow Him closely. You see the word for at the beginning of verse 4? It means because... Which means what he says here in verse 4, this is the basis. It's the foundation of what he just said at the end of verse 3. And his commandments are not burdensome. Why do you say that, John? For or because everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. That's why. Now, therefore, what does he mean by overcome the world? Well, the context, I think, is pretty clear. He's referring to our innate, natural impulse to view God's commandments as a heavy burden. And thus reject them. And reject them. Ephesians 2, we all by nature are born children of wrath following the course of this world, not God, the prince of the power of the air, etc. Just following our flesh and then God intervened, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead to Him, hated Him, hated His commands really, He made us alive together with His Son Jesus Christ. Our natural impulse is to reject God's commands is a heavy burden. But John's arguing that when a person is, and this is, this is supernatural, born again, 
something's happened. That impulse of finding God, really the true God, distasteful to us, the true God who there's holiness, there's something called sin, there are actions as human beings that in their definition are wrong and sinful laid out in Scripture. Our natural inclination is to find those even in religion yucky. Don't like it. But then John says what happens is a person gets born again and that irresistible impulse to only respond, they're a burden, they're a burden, they're a burden, has been overcome. Now we can find His commandments because of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. We can find them as a joy and not a burden. That's what he means by overcome. Now, John explains how that happens. How does that happen? See it? And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. We heard the truth of the Gospel. And we believed. Really? Jesus, who is God, became a human being and was slaughtered on a cross for, for my sin? So that I can face, we saw this last year, I mean last week, I can face Judgment Day? And it's going to be a good thing for me? There's no, no better news in the world! And you look back, oh, that, why did I awaken to that truth? We saw it already in verse 1. That's why we started there. It's the foundation of everything. We were born of God. And God, therefore, is the one that created faith. John is saying the way that being a born-again person overcomes the worldly burdensomeness of God's commands upon us is by His creating faith in us. Whoever has come to faith. That's the noun. Same word group. Pistis, the noun. Faith, we've overcome. Back in verse 1, everyone who believes, it's the verb form, pistuo. Same thing. That you see the truth, His promises, His commands, come unto me, and we come. That's what believing is. You're trustworthy. I've seen it. And we realize that proves that God has caused them to be born of God. New birth gives rise to faith in the person and the promises of Christ. And that's why John says to every believer, we have overcome. That's why His commandments are not burdensome. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. The world outside of us constantly tempts us it, this is what it's doing. It, it, it's in competition with God's commandments and God's promises and the Gospel. And, and, and your flesh is in tune with the world. But the Holy Spirit in you is not in tune. And this is why your life is to be a battle. The world is constantly promising. Disobeying God here will be more satisfying than obeying Him. That's the battle every day. Ignoring the fact that God put that person inconveniently into your life on that day to love. Temptation is, oh, if I could just go through the way I planned my day, I'd be happier. Constantly, the world out there is not on our side. And your flesh and my flesh is in agreement with the world. That's true of everybody before they ever come to Christ. And before they come to Christ, there's no other option. Before new birth, 
The commands of God run absolutely contrary to the lust of the flesh. This is how John put it earlier in chapter 2. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The world says yes, 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 yes. Our flesh says yes to that. Why? Because when God says no to some things, it's burdensome. You live in this world, I don't... You run your own business. And God says, don't manipulate truth and lie to customers in order to make more money. But everyone else is doing it. God says, don't do it. That is a burden. When God says, don't commit sinful sexual activity with other persons in a world that in our day and age more and more lifts up the message of fornication. But we're in love and we're boyfriend and girlfriend. We're committed. No, you're not. And and I'm going to say parents, I mean, these kids I'm figuring out more and more, not because of all our kids in our church, but I'm I'm hearing the culture, this kind of talk where they like to talk about boyfriend and girlfriend as if it's a husband and wife. It, It is a slam against Jesus Christ and the church. It is a slam against the covenant of marriage. But you see, in this world, to say that commandment is a burden to the flesh. To say... Adultery is wrong. Don't do it. Becomes a huge burden to many people. I've been living with that guy or that gal for 20 years and it's grown cold. That person at the office is nice to me. It is a burden to the flesh. See, Paul writes in Galatians 5, And now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like... These. Okay. The world, and to every genuine believer in here, our flesh still, that we have sin, meaning by flesh, what Paul means, our sinful nature says yes to those things. But if you're born again, that's the whole point. That yes lurks in every one of us. And that's why Paul says in this context, but I say, Christian, walk. It's an activity. Walk by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. And as you're doing that, you will not be gratifying the desires of the flesh. Paul lays out the Christian life. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other in order to keep you from doing the things because of the Spirit in you that you want to do. And then Paul lays out, when the Spirit is flowing, we're walking by Him, this is what comes out, right? The fruit of the Spirit. Love for others. Joy Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is part and parcel with the Gospel. Yes, we could say the Gospel is Jesus went and provided justification and stop and never bring in sanctification. But when you take the whole, this is, he's saying, what a Christian is looking like, as dirty and as messy as it is. They are in a battle. 
See, the Gospel includes what Jesus purchased. We have a huge question in every one of us who's serious about our walk with Jesus. Who will overcome my hard heart this week towards God? Who will overcome all the confusion in my mind about sin and lust and the lies and the temptations I constantly deal with in my flesh in living in this world? John's answer is, God will. And He does it by causing us to be born again so that we can see the infinite beauty and superiority of Jesus. We can hear His biblical promises and wow! And His commands. I trust you know what you're talking about. Command me, O Lord. That's what overcomes piece by piece by piece. Failure, failure, piece by piece. That's what overcomes the alluring promises of the fleeting pleasures of sin that beckon all around. John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone with us who's been born of God, who loves the Father, loves whoever else has been born of God. Jesus says, for instance, therefore, come unto me, all you who are in touch with how burdened you are and heavy laden and fearful of death and judgment, and you are in touch with your sin. Come to me. I will give you eternal rest for your souls. And we come. Because he says, everyone who believes in Jesus, that he's the Christ, oh, he's been born of God. Because God birthed us to come. And then he says, for everyone, therefore, who has been born of God, he or she overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our trust in Jesus. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes? Yes, Jesus. That man is the Son of God. And that's why, according to John, overall, in the walk by the Spirit, His commands are our joy and not a burden. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Faith in our lives says to the temptations of the world and of our flesh and of sin beckoning and of the sin of do not love your brothers and sisters. It says, no! Because I know where true happiness and true joy and true peace is. It's in Him. It's in His promises. It's in loving each other. That's our daily Christian life. That's why we who have been born of God unite with others who have been born of God in local expressions of Christ's body and become members and make covenant. Here's just one line. I'm closing right now. I promise. Here's one line of our covenant here at Sovereign Grace. We say, yes, I read Bible. I know Jesus. You, this is Bible. I covenant with you. We say this, we will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church. We will exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may Require because we've been born 
of God. We are being saved undeservedly by the only Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, before we start to worship, we have the joy of welcoming a new member covenanting with us here at Sovereign Grace Fellowship. Wesp, stand. Make your way. Come on up here. This is a joy for me and I know it's a joy for all of those who know you because they've expressed that. And when we receive new members... It always gives us that opportunity again to read our entire covenant. So for you who are members, this is like a 20th anniversary. You're renewing your vows to, like in a marriage. Okay, And so you'll be saying yes and amen at the end of this. And, and for Wes, as we read this out loud publicly, then if this is he saying yes to you brothers and sisters at Sovereign Grace, I say yes and amen to this, then you're all in, baby. Okay, so here we go. Having, as we trust, been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give up ourselves to Him, and having been baptized upon our profession of faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, relying on His gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with each other. Here we roll, okay? We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church and exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and for others. We will endeavor to bring up such as may at any time be under our care, bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, and by a pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and our friends. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, and to aid one another in sickness and in distress. To be slow to take offense. And remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and a holy life in this world. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. We will, when we move from this place, local church, if that happens to any of us, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's Word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Members of Sovereign Grace, is this your covenant? Yes. Wes.
Is this your covenant with us here at Sovereign Grace? Hallelujah. Glory to God. Let's go. Stretch out, stretch out your hand to our brother. Father, thank you so much for the gift that we who are members here have already known and tasted of in the life of Wes and his passion to pursue you, his, his desperateness to want more of you. Father, His service to us here in the way that He even already serves us. We thank You for allowing us to be brothers and sisters to Him in helping His walk. We thank You for the joy of having Him here with us in helping us in our walk. Father, You are good and may the grace of, of, of the truth of this covenant, the grace of Your holy word, the grace of this passage this morning, be His ongoing encouragement along with all of us as we battle against our flesh, as we walk in the Spirit, as we pursue You and constantly place our hope not in ourselves, but in the justification that You, Lord Jesus, have provided for me, for Bob, for all of us. You are good. And we are grateful. Let's sing.